So I think there's a huge gap in training and we need to kind of make sure that that gap is addressed. Uh, so fellows going in a PQ training need to make sure that they get a lot of sedation experience in the outpatient arena because when they apply for jobs, a lot of PQ programs are saying, hey, we have an outpatient sedation service and you will be required to work in that outpatient sedation service. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Pete Script Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges, and I'm a current PICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a PEDS ICU fellow at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at the Pete Script Podcast? Yes. Pete's Crit is a collaborative educational PICU podcast. We are working with pediatric critical care educators around the world to create high-yield blog and podcast episodes on core PICU topics. And listeners, if you're a pediatric critical care provider and would like to become involved in this project, be sure to reach out to us by email or on our website at pedscrit.com. We're hoping to create a space to further add to the online community of peds ICU learners by collaborating with guest educators on their favorite critical care topics. Yes, please reach out at pedscrit.com or at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. Zach, who are we talking with today? So we're excited to have Dr. Pradeep Kamat with us today. This is part one of a three-episode series. Today, we're going to introduce the topic of procedural sedation and discuss why it's so valuable for pediatric intensivists to develop and refine this clinical skill set. Yes. Dr. Pradeep Kamat is an associate professor of pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine and a practicing pediatric intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. He is well known for his leadership in pediatric procedural sedation, and we are so excited to talk with him. Yes, he's an absolute pioneer in the field. We're excited and grateful to have him on the podcast today. Let's get right to it. Welcome back to the Ped Script Podcast. We are so excited to be joined by Pradeep Kamat today to discuss pediatric procedural sedation. Welcome, Pradeep. Thank you, Alice and Zach. Thank you all for having me today on your Ped Script Podcast. I'm really delighted to be here and discuss my favorite topic, pediatric procedural sedation. I just wanted to make it clear that I do not have any financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. Excellent. And neither do we. Can I get anything started? So why is sedation an important topic for pediatric intensivists? You know, first thought, this seems like something much more relevant for anesthesia providers. Yeah, I think, Zach, uh, that's an excellent question. I think I would start by saying that as pediatric intensivists, we are trained in sedation in the ICU. We are trained in management of airway issues, and we are also trained in management of hemodynamic issues. When we do procedural sedation outside the ICU, the most common problem is going to be either with the airway or the hemodynamics. So by nature of our training, I think we are perfectly suited to do procedural sedation outside a PICU. Now, what's been happening is in the last couple of decades, a lot of uh, pediatricians and subspecialists are moving away from CT scans towards ordering more MRI uh, imaging for their patients. And that is due to concern of radiation exposure with the CT scans. Now, MRIs by nature tend to be longer and require substantial immobility and are not forgiving when they try to acquire good quality images. And so there is increased need for sedation. Now, in the last two decades, anesthesiologists have been extremely busy and this has kind of forced others like pediatric emergency medicine docs, pediatric critical care docs, and now even hospitalists to fill in that gap to provide procedural sedation outside the operating room. 
So hence, I think it is very, very important for ICU docs to be trained in procedural sedation so they can provide procedural sedation, especially when fellows finish their training and get a new attending job somewhere. Oh, wow. That's so intuitive, the way that as soon as every kid needs an MRI and not a CT scan, now everybody needs procedural sedation. I think that's so, that really resonates. What exactly do you mean by procedural sedation? How is this different from general anesthesia? Alice, that's a fantastic question. So the way I explain procedural sedation to my trainees and even patients is that think of it as a natural airway sedation to get a procedure done, whether it's a MRI or even a bone marrow biopsy. What I mean by natural airway is whenever a patient is undergoing that imaging study or even a procedure, we do not instrument the airway. That is, we do not put a breathing tube in the airway or we do not put a laryngeal mask airway, which is we commonly call as LMA, in the airway. We want that patient breathing on his or our own whenever we are doing this sedation. In contrast, general anesthesia is usually going to involve the placement of some device in the airway, either the breathing tube or an LMA, because the patient is not easily arousable and the airway may be compromised and the breathing may be compromised and therefore the breathing needs to be supported. Now, if you take procedural sedation, which I really want people to call it more like a natural airway sedation so that yeah. we are dependent on the patient's breathing. Okay, the airway may be maintained by some small device like nasopharyngeal airway or even an oral airway. We are really dependent on the patient's reflexes to maintain the airway tone and their intrinsic ability to breathe. So that's the natural airway that's very important when we do procedural sedation. Procedural sedation can be classified depending on the patient's response to voice, touch, pain, and as well as whether we need airway support and cardiovascular support into different levels. The most common level is what we call as mild sedation, where the patient is easily responds to a verbal question. If you ask the patient his name, the patient may easily wake up and look around. The patient is not dependent on any external instrument to maintain their airway, and their cardiovascular system is not compromised. That basically is mild sedation. Now, if you go to the other extreme, you have something called as deep sedation, where the patient is responsive only to a painful stimulus. Patient's airway is usually maintained, and patient's hemodynamics are maintained too. And that, if you take a just jump across the fence from deep sedation, you reach general anesthesia, where the patient is, again, like I said before, cannot be aroused, needs airway support, and may or may need something to maintain the blood pressure. That is general anesthesia. So as non-anesthesiologists, we are usually dealing with either mild, moderate, or deep sedation. We are not doing general anesthesia. It is important for providers to remember that sedation is a continuum, and any time a patient who is quote-unquote mildly sedated can easily slip into a depth that is where we may have to recover the patient, even going to deep sedation or even resulting in general anesthesia. How very interesting. I really like that phrase, natural airway sedation. I think that really communicates that we're not trying to sedate the patient to the point they need an instrument to maintain their airway. I think it's also another good take-home point here is that sedation is on a continuum, right? Starts with mild, progresses to moderate, and then past deep, and then general anesthesia. There's not really hard cutoffs between each classification. What about conscious sedation? This is a term I've kind of heard throughout my training. Where does that fit in? 
Yeah, we, you know, we really don't use this term anymore. And in fact, I don't even look at a study that has conscious sedation written anywhere in the title or on the in the conclusion. The new term really is either you can say natural airway sedation or procedural sedation. No one, when they're sedated, can really remain conscious. I think it kind of refers to somewhere in between mild to moderate sedation. Historically, moderate sedation was quote-unquote considered as conscious sedation. But I really uh, would highly encourage people to refrain from using the term conscious sedation. Oh, wow. So the field has moved away from this term to the point where you start to lose your validity by saying it. Like, we really don't use that anymore. That's interesting. Okay. So we have these two sedation paradigms that you cross between regularly in your clinical practice. We have our outpatient sedation of healthy kids that you could do natural airway sedation on, and then the sedation that we need to provide in the PEAS ICU. Can you help explain the difference between the two scenarios? Yes. In the pediatric intensive care unit, a lot of our patients may already have an advanced airway, and all you do is a procedure on them by providing medications. There is an unlimited support personal availability in the PICU. You can easily call a respiratory therapist. You can call uh, two, three nurses. You know, If they are kids are stable and they can come and help you, they will come and help you. There is extensive monitoring. You know, The blood pressure may be monitored using an arterial line. There's availability of capnography, et cetera in the PICU, which may not be present in an outpatient setting. And most importantly, within the PICU, there is very easy access to the patient. What I mean by that is contrast that in an outpatient setting where a small baby is placed in an MRI. You know, if the baby has deterioration of vital signs, you really cannot just run into the room. You have to be very careful. So that is one important difference between sedation in the PICU versus sedation outside the PICU, where you may not have quick access to your patient. The other thing to be pointed out about outpatient sedation is outpatient sedation may not be done at a centralized location at all the time. It may be done in the basement of the hospital, where usually most of the MRI scanners are. It may be provided far away from a central workstation wherever they have their nuclear medicine, or it may be provided in a clinic, like in a hemong clinic where the patients need bone marrow biopsies or LPs. So it could be far away from a central location. And the other thing I want to point out is your team may be not the same team that you see as you would see in the PICU, the same nurses, same respiratory therapists. Many of these outpatient sedation areas have nurses that rotate from different places. You may not be familiar with them, although they may be very competent in doing what they're doing. So outpatient sedation, there's not a lot of people available. It's usually a physician and a nurse. And, and the person doing the procedure or the radiology technician doing the imaging. So you don't have quick access to call for help with more people. You know, if the patient does something that you are not capable of handling, the next thing you need to do is to press the code button, which in the PICU may be just a PICU alert and call for more help. In outpatient setting, that may not be possible. How very interesting and how very scary kind of thinking about doing this sedation in an outpatient scenario where you don't have access to the resources you'd have in the PICU. Yeah. The, the idea that if, if they just need to be bagged, just a little extra suction or something, that might be a code button, right? That's You can't just call a bunch of PICU nurses into the room. That really sheds light on the, the differences. So I feel like a next logical question is since we're now moving to providing sedation kind of outside the scope of a pediatric anesthesiologist, how safe is this? How safe is outpatient sedation? 
That's a great question. I don't think we have any randomized control trials that have specifically assessed safety of procedural sedation. And the reason behind that is, first of all, randomized control trials are very expensive. They're very labor intensive and they're very difficult to perform, especially in outpatient sedation settings. For example, if you want to try a certain drug and you put a patient in MRI and if the drug fails, the patient's MRI is not done for that day. So it's very difficult to study which drug really works in an outpatient setting, doesn't work in an outpatient setting. And same way, safety is very difficult to assess. Now, a lot of studies always comment that by saying that it is safe and it is you know, not dangerous, but they're not really randomized control trials and they don't have enough power to actually make that statement. However, coming to large databases, which are like surrogates for these RCTs. One of the large databases that I can think about is the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium, which we call as PSRC, and it's the research arm of the Society for Pediatric Sedation. What we have done is we have taken large number of sedation encounters and looked for associations. And for example, we have looked at a lot of premature babies undergoing sedation, and we have found out that premature babies who undergo deep sedation, they have a higher association with airway events like apnea, laryngospasm, bronchospasm. So we kind of use those type of large databases to kind of provide a surrogate hey, this is associated with this kind of an event. But again, to really answer the question, outpatient sedation is very safe. There is a very low incidence of adverse events. The mortality is almost non-existent and therefore it is safe. But again, it is not kind of really tested in randomized clinical trials, but it is safe by association that there have not been much badness around it. Even if we don't have a good RCT, I'm glad that the event rates are low. When you talk about adverse events in pediatric sedation, can you tell us more about the specific risk factors that you're looking for? Before that, I just want to clarify what an adverse event is. The way we look at adverse events is, first of all, adverse events have to be very objective, meaning any provider in the room can quickly say that is something wrong. We need to respond to that. And for example, when I go every morning and use propofol for sedation, if I push propofol too fast, the patient is going to have a desaturation from an oxygen saturation of 98. It may go to 91 or 90. All I'm going to do is slow down my pushing of propofol. I'm going to give some jaw thrust, maybe a little bit of oxygen, and the kid sets come right back up to 98%. So is that an event that is really clinically concerning? The answer is no, because I expect that, when, especially when I push my medications really fast. So these are what I call as sedation minor events, meaning they don't have a tendency or a potential to cause harm. Now, from large PSRC studies, we have found that the sedation adverse events are close to about 5%, okay? And this include simple things like desaturation, hypoxia, coughing, agitation. And, you know, they're not of much clinical significance because they resolve on their own or they resolve with simple measures. Now, for the listeners, the adverse events they need to be really concerned about are called as serious adverse events. Now, serious adverse events are events that have potential to cause irreversible neurologic harm. And for example, cardiac arrest, major aspiration event, laryngospasm that is not easily reversed. These become serious adverse events. Fortunately for us, the serious adverse event rate in procedural sedation is less than 2%. 
And I think providers now are well-trained in early recognition and management of these adverse events. Now, coming to uh, the risk factors, the way to look at that is where is the sedation provided? If the sedation is provided in some remote location, you know, away from a central location where there is a lot of help, a small event can become a big event, especially if the sedation providers are not experienced enough. Certain locations from past studies have found that uh, cardiac catheterization labs or dental offices, they historically have higher incidence of adverse events, including serious adverse events. Now, a case can be made, a patient undergoing a procedure in the cath lab is very sick to begin with because they have problems with their heart, or patients undergoing very deep sedation in a dental office may be doing so because they have other comorbidities and are not able to uh, sit still with just local anesthesia. So that may be a factor playing a role in this location. The other way to look at this is look at provider characteristics. You know, what is the training of the provider? Is he or she freshly out of fellowship without a lot of experience? What are their skills? What is their risk preference? Is he or her just going to push a drug really fast or use multiple drugs without being very careful? And those are the things people learn with experience. So a newer provider may kind of have more adverse events than a more experienced provider. Patient characteristics, probably the most important thing in adverse events is our patient characteristics. Usually patients who are very small, less than three months of age, can have higher adverse events. Similarly, studies have shown that patients who are like in the teenage age group, especially when ketamine is used, can have a higher adverse event rate. Patients who have a higher ASA, PS classification of three and above can have higher adverse event rate. Those patients with difficult airways, I wouldn't sedate them personally, but they could be uh, giving you a higher adverse event rate. And then the practice characteristics, you know, like what are the medications folks use? What is their technique? Do they do a lot of invasive procedure? Like certain procedures like bronchoscopy, they may have more complication rate because lungs are involved, airways involved, limited access to airway uh, versus a simple procedure like an abscess drainage somewhere. And then what's the overall culture of safety at that institution? Those are very important things to consider before looking at all adverse events. I think a combination of all this makes the sedation adverse event rate lower or higher, but I'm happy it's less than 2.5% for serious adverse events, and it's less than 5% for minor sedation complications. Well, thanks for all that, Pradeep. There was so much information here I think we should review. So I think that distinction between adverse events kind of total and then the serious adverse events would be something for our listeners to take home. You know, those serious adverse events are the ones that are clinically meaningful to the patient. Uh, and then overall, we think those are around 2% of all pediatric procedural sedations. Next, kind of focusing on those risk factors that you mentioned, they're all really logical, but I think it's good to review. So location, of course, if you're not at the hospital, you're in a dental office or potentially in a catheterization lab where the patient's already a bit more sick, most more likely those are going to be logically more likely to have adverse events. Next, of course, your more seasoned providers are probably less likely to have adverse events. And then those patient characteristics, so less than three months of age, or those are maybe a little bit older, there's going to be some specifics about those patients that may make them have a higher risk of having an adverse event. Kind of moving forward, we've hinted at this a couple of times, but what are those typical settings and the types of cases that PICU physicians are more and more providing procedural sedation for? 
Yeah, most of the sedation actually is provided outside the PQ by PQ physicians. And most of the sedation actually is done in radiology. And when I'm in a radiology, they are involved with uh, sedating patients who need MRIs, patients who need uh, CT scans, PET scans, long nuclear medicine scans. And even sometimes for a simple ultrasound, a patient may need sedation, especially if they're young or if they have developmental delay and may not lay still, they may need sedation for that. The other place that a lot of sedation is actually provided nowadays is actually in the hematology oncology clinic areas where a patient with the leukemia, lymphoma, or any other blood disorder usually need LPs and bone marrows either for A, diagnosis or diagnostic purposes, or B, even for their routine therapeutic and surveillance purposes. They usually get sedation because those procedures can be very painful. And other places we provide sedation are emergency room for patients who have broken arms, who need close reduction and casting. We provide sedation for patients who need a urinary catheters placed for their VCUG exams. And in general, a lot of places even have mobile units where they go throughout the hospital sedating for patients who are getting pick lines or central lines. The sky is the limit. Once you show success, a lot of different subspecialists will want you to sedate their kids as opposed to sending them to the operating room. Oh, wow. Okay. So we've got the PICU attendings and sedation teams helping out radiology, hemonc, going down to the ER and helping sedate kids. What type of medical team is typically required for a safe pediatric sedation? Usually what you get in an outpatient setting is a sedation trained physician and sedation trained nurse. If you are sedating for a patient in, say, MRI, you on top of that going to get an MRI uh, technologist who is going to help you position the patient in the MRI. But the main sedation is provided by you and the nurse. The nurse usually prepares all the medications, whereas you as a sedation physician is responsible for administering the medications, checking on the patient's airway and hemodynamics. And that is all you get. The same thing is if you're doing an invasive painful procedure, you get the same sedation physician, a sedation trained nurse, and then you interact with the physician doing the procedure who should be completely separate from the physician doing sedation. And Mm -hmm. the physician doing the procedure may have a nurse with him or her who is there to help him or her. Good. So it it definitely takes a dedicated team, having a dedicated sedation provider and sedation nurse. I think another good distinction that we need to be sure to to keep in mind is that provider giving the sedatives, they're not doing the procedure. You have to have a separate person to do that. That's correct. So my initial impression hearing about PICU physicians providing sedation outside of the IC, my initial impression is that's something that's not too old. It's relatively new. Um, How common is it for PICU programs to have a sedation service across the United States? Is that something that's everywhere? That's a very good question, and I think I'm going to answer it indirectly. In a survey that we did, looking at all sedation programs within the Society of Pediatric Sedation, which is about almost 56 to 57 large sedation programs, we found out that 78% of all procedural sedations were actually provided by pediatric intensivists. And wow. this includes everywhere, just not within the PICU, but outside the PICU, anywhere outside the operating room, 78% 
were actually provided by the pediatric intensivists. So to indirectly answer your question, I think most of the PICUs in the country have some sort of a sedation practice going on, whether it's within their own ICU or outside the ICU, there's some way involved with sedation. In a survey that was done by Hooper, what he reported was that only about 38% of fellows who are training in ACGME accredited fellowship programs, which are almost 65 fellowship programs that they surveyed, they found that only 38% of the fellows actually received formal training in procedural sedation during their PICU fellowship. And of those fellows, only 9% of the programs use simulation for sedation training. Now, what the fellows were also asked is how comfortable were they finishing their fellowship and going to a program where they were told to sedate outside the PICU. Only 52% said they were they felt like they had sufficient training to do procedural sedation. So I think there's a huge gap in training, and we need to kind of make sure that that gap is addressed. Uh, so fellows going in a PQ training need to make sure that they get a lot of sedation experience in the outpatient arena, because when they apply for jobs, a lot of PQ programs are saying, hey, we have an outpatient sedation service, and you will be required to work in that outpatient sedation service. Wow. I'm hearing that as a fellow, you need to go after this training in order to be marketable on the job market because we have a deficiency of pediatric anesthesiologists. We have kids that need sedation. The PICU providers are already providing the sedation. And so you going into clinical practice, this is a skill you have to bring to the table. Thank you for listening to this episode of PedScript. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcasts at gmail.com. Check out pedscript.com for detailed show notes and visit at critpeds on Twitter and at pedscript on Instagram for real-time show updates. Thanks again for listening.